Good morning once again. I am Michael, and uh, very to have you with us on this Sunday morning. A quick thing. Um, we, you might have noticed uh, the orange barricades over there, as well as the porta potty and construction bin um, out behind the CLC. We are about to begin, um, I guess they have kind of begun, um, construction on our new atrium um, expansion over there. And so what that means is it's not going to affect the sanctuary much, but as always, just kidding, no, it will affect us uh, because they are going to close in that back area right there that's going to become a coffee shop. Just that little corner section right there of the CLC is going to become the foundry too. Um, And then uh, the parlor, that wall will be taken down. Uh, And then big, huge sliding wooden doors will be put in place there so that it can be shut off for funerals, such like that, as well as open during Sundays. So what that means is the way we come in will change for the next few months, um, eventually. I don't know when they are going to block us off, but eventually they will. So what we will do is we will direct people um, either through these double doors right here um, on the side or through that one. And I will say it's not going to be fun for any of us because if you come late, which let's face it, most of you do, um, it's going to be like a bright, just like sun coming in and then real quick closing. Um, So it's going to be interesting over the next couple of months, but it will be fun. So it's kind of a gamble. You know, you come on Sunday and you'll figure out which door to enter in as you come. There you go. That said, don't stop coming though, because we love you all. Um, most of you, this is continuing on Matthew uh, chapter 16 is where we are. And last week, Reed Minitsky was here. We're very, um, I was very excited to give Reed an opportunity. Reed is the youngest son of Dr. David Minitsky, our senior pastor down the hall. Um, and uh, Reed is great. I mean, he's a kid who is, for his age, so mature, so intelligent. He gets it all from his mother. And yes, David listens to these. So there you go, Dave. Uh, yeah, so I, I was very blessed to have him um, bring his teaching um, that he took a lot, I know, from Ray Vanderlaan, um, and which, you know, let's face it, Ray is awesome. So that was great teaching. But we find ourselves right after Peter has declared the rock, you know. Um, Peter has declared the rock. Uh, and upon which my church will be built. The gates, gates of Hades will not overcome. And Jesus then, right after he says all this stuff, says this. Then he sternly warned them. At verse 20 is where I am. Sternly warned them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that he had to go to Jerusalem. And he told them what would happen to him there. He would suffer at the hands of the leaders, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, and he would be raised on the third day. But Peter took him aside and corrected him. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Okay, let's put yourself in Peter's position for a second. Peter, the oldest disciple, he was, um, you know, coming through. Jesus gives him this accolade. Peter's up here. Naturally, he has this rejection to what Jesus is saying. And he goes, no, Jesus, let's do it this way. And Jesus goes, wham, just slaps him. He goes from up here to not even on the map anymore in a matter of moments. Imagine that from the Messiah being taken from one extreme to another. But there's importance in that. 
So what's happening? Jesus just declares, Peter says, you're the Messiah. Jesus is like, you're right. I am. Surprise! You know, I am the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for for generations. Our people have been praying for the Messiah to come. Here I am. But don't tell anyone. Let's keep this amongst ourselves. What an interesting thing to say, right? The disciples had to have been just exploding. You're him. We thought you were. We knew you were. But now you have it. We have it completely. We know. Let's get going. Let's roll. Let's move. People have been waiting for generation upon generation for you to come. You're here. Let's go. And Jesus says no. Because this is what has to happen. I need to go to Jerusalem. I need the elders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sanhedrin, they made up the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jewish life. I need them to condemn me, to convict me. I need to be executed, and then I will raise again three days later. So contrary to what you would think the Messiah would do, this anointed king, the anointed one, the one who would come to end oppression, who would free the people Israel from captivity once and for all. Now's the time to move. And that's what Peter says. Peter naturally says, hey, Jesus, let's, let's do it this way. Let's, let's gather people together. We can go to Jerusalem. That's great. But on our way, let's kind of gather forces. Let's recruit people. Let's, let's build up a militia, an army, so that when we eventually reach Jerusalem, we can have our Independence Day. Very appropriate this weekend to talk about this. That we can fight against the ruler who oppresses us and bring freedom to our people. Jesus knows what's going through his mind and he stops him, rebukes him quickly. Get behind me, Satan. Now, why did Jesus react so viscerally? Why was it so quickly and so like striking out? If you think about it, this isn't the first time that he has been confronted this way. In fact, it's not even the first time that he has said something similar to this. Matthew chapter 4 is, um, I know it was like a year ago that we were in Matthew chapter 4, maybe even longer. But it says this. Then Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he ate nothing and became very hungry. Then the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, change these stones into loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, No. The scripture says people need more than bread for their life. They must feed on every word of God. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He orders his angels to protect you, and they will hold you with their hands to keep you from striking your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The scriptures also say, Do not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him the nations of the world in all their glory. I will give it to you, he said, if you will only kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, he said. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God, serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and cared for Jesus. If you read that version right there, he is being tempted to do what he was supposed to do in a different way. He is being tempted to take hold of who he was, the right king, 
But do it in a way that God hadn't desired. Do it in a way that was contrary to God's will. And Jesus knew that. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. Be gone. He confronts him. And Luke, if you look at the Luke's version of this, it's also in chapter 4. Um, Luke says, where Matthew ends it there and says the angels came and cared for him. Luke says the devil went away until a more opportune time. See, the devil wasn't done with Jesus. The devil was not finished with his plan to get Jesus off of his course. The devil had more in store for Jesus, his chief adversary, which is what Satan means. So you have this in Luke, this interpretation of, okay, there was temptation. Jesus overcame that temptation, but it wasn't over. And so here you have Peter, trusted, beloved Peter. Peter, who has a heart so big and so ferocious for Jesus, so passionate for the Messiah, that he jumps in and does the exact same thing that the devil did in chapter 4. He tempts Jesus with a different way, a way that was contrary to God's will. No, we can't do that. We'll never let that happen to you. Let's maybe do it a different way. And Jesus slaps him. And it wasn't because necessarily Peter, it was more from the temptation side of things, I think, from, from Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't just a God who, who, uh, who came to earth and, and gave up some of his Godship, but kind of held on to it. He was fully man and he understood temptation. He understood the things that we understand, the temptations that we go through in this world and in this life, and he suffered. So when something would come around the, uh, the bend, an easier way to do things... He took it seriously. This wasn't the last time that he would be tempted either. In the garden, as he is waiting for the Roman soldiers to come and to arrest him and to begin the whole chain of events. What does he say? God, take this cup from me. He's tempted once again. There's an easier way. Let's do this easier way because I know what's about to happen and it's not going to be pretty. But what does he say? But not my will. Yours. I, I know that it could be easier this other way, but that's temptation. So no, not my will, but yours be done. And then they come. This temptation that keeps happening again and again in the life of Jesus. He understands us because he became one of us. He gets our trials, our tribulations, our temptations. He gets those things. And as we look at his life and how he dealt with it, he didn't flirt around with the temptation. He stopped it. This isn't the way. See, Peter's idea was to do things the worldly way. Well, if you have an anointed king, what kings do is they take over by force. That's what kings do. If you're the anointed king, then let's build a military around you. Let's go in. Let's surprise everyone in Jerusalem. Attack, take over, done. We can, we can get a militia on the way there. It'll be great. You don't have to do what you're going. Don't give yourself over. What kind of king does that? John the Baptist was thinking very similar thoughts. So you have this opposite way of thinking, really. 
N.T. Wright points out, um, he, he does this great story, uh, he, Lewis Carroll, who wrote Alice in Wonderland, also Alice Through the Looking Glass. N.T. Wright says that, um, you know, in this Alice Through the Looking Glass, the story is um, that you have this mirror. And essentially, if I want to get from here to the back of the CLC, in my world's view, I would start walking towards the back of the CLC. But in this Alice Through the Looking Glass, what happens is when you walk towards the end, when you walk towards your goal, you, you eventually will look up and find that you're further away from there. So in order for me to get from here to there, I would turn around and walk this way. And I would eventually come upon my desired end. See, Jesus was doing something similar. We believed, Peter believed, most any of us would believe, the way to take down a government is to be stronger. Is to go this way. And Jesus said, hey, how about we go this way? How about we love? How about we sacrifice? How about we care? How about we give it all? Let's go this way to get there instead of the way the world tells us to go. I think that's the truth in many points in our life is we have these moments of decision, of great decision, and we feel like the world says the easiest way is this way. This is the direction that we should take. But it's contrary to what God would have us do. And God's saying, no. How about you go this way? When someone at work does something to you unethically, do you strike back? Or as scripture says, do you turn the other cheek? Hey, you, you took my cloak, but you forgot my sandals. It's contrary. Remember back many, many months ago, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets his entire ministry up right there. And he says, this is not the way you think it's going to happen. Everything that you have heard and believed and learned before is now going to go. Those who don't deserve love. That's why I came to give you love. It flips everything on its head. He walks through a mirror, a looking glass. Peter didn't get that. And Peter said, no, this is the way. This is the way that we should go. This is the right way. And maybe on paper it looked good. But that wasn't the way of Christ. And it was a temptation. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. The actual Greek there is hubaga, um, Satan. There's two words in there that are, that are added for this Matthew 16. In Matthew 4, it was hubaga, Satan. In Matthew 16, it was hubaga, opiso, mal, Satan. Satan. Now the addition to those is if you read in Matthew 4, when Jesus is speaking with the devil, he says, be gone. And leaves it at that. I'm done with you. Get out. Leave. Never return. And so when we come to Peter, and Peter says this, as naturally most of us would have some sort of opinion like this. Hey, how about this? He says, Hubaga, opiso mal, Satan. Because Peter, you're not speaking as yourself right now. You're speaking from something other. You're speaking in a worldly perspective and you don't understand all that's going on. So get out and get behind me. Opiso mal is behind me. See, what Jesus does here 
is he says, yes, get out. But he doesn't cast Peter aside forever. He says, you failed. That's all right. I love you. Come stand behind me where you belong. I'm the rabbi. You're to be covered in my dust. To become like me. And the only way you can do that is to stand behind me and follow me. See, I think this is very significant because if, if those two words were left out for Peter, Peter would have been done. Just mentally, emotionally, spiritually, just crushed, I'm sure. But what he says, as a loving teacher does, is he rebukes him. Be gone. And know your place. Stop following the way of the world and follow my way. My way. Because look, let's face it, this isn't the only time that Peter messes up, is it? Peter messes up again, pretty largely, in a couple of chapters. He turns his back on Jesus. Peter, the rock, the one who the church would be built upon, turns his back on Christ. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows who Peter is, this impetuous man who's strong and pulls his sword out in the garden. He knows all of these things about Peter, and that's what he digs about him. He's fiery. But Peter doesn't get it all yet. None of the disciples saw truly what Jesus was doing until it happened. And we have the, we have the vision of 2020 from hindsight. We, get to, we know the rest of the story. At this point, the disciples don't. And so they're living in a reality in a world where they don't understand the cross and the resurrection. They don't get what's happening. So they're trying to figure it all out. If you look at the way they live their life, they kind of get it in glimpses throughout the gospel stories. And you can see them getting a little closer to their Savior and a little further back and a little closer. And they get it. You are the Messiah. Well, let's go kick some tail. Oh, you still don't get it. In the garden, they try to fight, protect him. Oh, you still don't get it. But then... If you read on, if you read into the history of the church, into the book of Acts, you see that these men and women got it. They understood that in order to get from here to the cross, you don't walk the way of the world. You walk the way of Jesus. They understood to stand behind their rabbi and to remember all that he had taught them, all that he had shown them. That your life, it is to be, if it is to be a life worthy then you walk behind your Savior. You stand in the dust of your rabbi. And you follow his path and not the path of the world. I think the beautiful thing about this is it's a reminder that hope exists. That hope exists for our failures. Because there are so many times that I've chosen the way of the world instead of the way of God. When I have known without a doubt that God said go this way, and I went that way. Anybody ever been there? Wow. I'm so glad I'm preaching to people that don't need it. That is awesome. It's like three of you. We'll meet afterwards and we'll like hug each other and, you know, but the rest of you just go on and, you know, shoot fireworks, whatever, even though it's illegal. You probably would do that anyway because you don't follow the dust of your rabbi. I know that there have been multiple times in my life when, when I have thought that I understood what was best for me. Even though I had spiritual counsel from people I respect greatly, and I, and I know that God was telling me to do something, I'm like, yeah, but I think this is the way. 
beautiful part of that is God understands that. He gets it. We, we tend to operate sometimes and put God into this, this disaster response team mode. That when things fail, like, oh, hey, God. But before that, we're like, God's like, hey, remember me? You never call anymore. You don't text me. I don't think God texts. Just not while driving. We put him into this. When things go wrong, we reach out to him. But in the meantime, we kind of put it on cruise control and think that we understand our life. And what are you saying is get behind me. Know your place. Your place is not in the world. Because we're better than that. Your place is with me. And yeah, there will be times when you step out on your own and you say, you know what? I got this one, God. You chill out. Go help him because he really needs it. I'm okay for a while. And then you fell on your face. I don't know how many times I just picture God coming up to me going, <laughs> I told you. Picking me up. I'm just crying, bawling, scraped up, got road rash everywhere. He's like, all right, let's take care of it. Get back behind me and let's move. Because think about it. If you're out in front of the Savior, if you're out in front of Christ, think of how big the waves are. How huge the arrows look. If you're out in front of the wall of protection, of grace, of salvation, of mercy. If you're out in front of that, who wants to be out in front of that? You want to be back behind in the shelter underneath the wings. There's the beauty of hope there. Hope that is found in the body and blood of Christ. Hope that is found in the cross, the death, and the resurrection of our Savior. Hope eternal. Something that Peter didn't quite yet understand here. But he gets there. What does it mean to stand behind Christ? To be opiso mal? What does it mean to be behind the Savior? We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And in the meantime, if you're out in front of him, run. Run to the back. Do not walk. Just go now. Get behind the Savior. I got to tell you, I've been out in the front and I hate it. I will continue throughout my life from time to time to go, huh, watch this. (laughs) Step out into traffic. But remember that there is always hope. If there's hope for Peter, there's hope for the rest of us. Let us pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of life that you offer us through the death and resurrection of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that even though we so often take it upon ourselves to do what we think is right for us, and we fail, we falter and we drop that you are there to pick us up lovingly as a father does his children to hold us in your loving arms to heal us and care for us and put us back down on the path that you have for us God I pray that all of us in those moments when we find ourselves standing in the face of traffic out in front of you would realize where we are 
And we would have the courage and the strength to get back behind you, underneath your love. God, we thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.